Hi, it's Erica Kohlberg. And before we dive into today's podcast episode, I have an exciting announcement that can help you save an extra $1,000 without having to penny pinch or change your lifestyle. On Monday, I'm running my free five-day savings challenge where you'll discover simple and creative ways that you can save extra money every month. And whatever you want to do with that extra money is up to you. I'll just show you how to save it. The challenge is totally free to join. All you need to do is go to erica.com slash go. Erica is with a K and you can secure your spot. By the way, these strategies that you're going to discover can help you easily save money, whether you're a budgeting novice or a finance expert, and they're going to get better and better throughout the week. But I have to tell you, I'm so excited about this and don't want you to miss out. In November of last year, we ran a savings challenge and had over 200,000 people sign up. And on average, people saved $1,005 that month through what they learned in the challenge. That means our challengers collectively saved over $200 million. So trust me when I say you don't want to miss out on this one. And the deadline to sign up to be part of this free challenge is Sunday, 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. So make sure you secure your spot and get free access today. Again, that's erica.com slash go, E-R-I-K-A dot com slash go. See you inside. Your time is yours and yours alone. So when it comes to time, when you know it's important, it's a lot easier to ignore what's not. Marie Forleo describes herself as a multi-passionate entrepreneur. She quit her full-time magazine career and built a socially conscious digital empire. Hey, it's Marie Forleo, and you are watching Marie TV. Marie Forleo is a leader. This is a woman that if you're not already following her, you must. What about for the people who are just starting and trying to make their first $10,000 in business? What would be your advice for them? I think it's really important as an entrepreneur to... You're listening to the Erica Taught Me podcast, the number one business podcast in the U.S., where we talk about entrepreneurship, money, and how to improve your life and achieve success. I'm your host, Erica Kohlberg. I'm a lawyer and personal finance expert with over 20 million followers on social media. Today, I'm interviewing Marie Forleo, entrepreneur, number one New York Times bestselling author, and motivational coach. Marie is passionate about a lot of things, and she realized that she wasn't meant to just choose one thing to focus her life on. She's created a digital empire that is changing people's lives. In today's episode, we discuss money, passive income, and Marie gives advice on how to start a business for aspiring entrepreneurs. This episode is jam-packed with information for anyone who feels stuck and is ready to change the direction of their lives. Are you ready for this episode? I'm Erica Kohlberg, this is Erica Taught Me, and today we're here with Marie Forleo. You guys know that I love investing because you know that if your money is just sitting in a bank account, you're losing out to inflation every single year. That's why you invest it so that it grows for you without you having to put in any extra work. I've been using an investing app called Webull for almost four years, and I had them do something really special for my listeners. By using my link to sign up today, you can get between six to 12 fractional shares for free. All you need to do is open an account and deposit any amount, even a dollar, to claim your free shares. So just by depositing a dollar, you'll get between 6 to 12 free fractional shares. And if you're wondering what to actually invest in, we talk all about investing in episode 28, so go ahead and listen to that episode. To claim your free shares through my special link, just go to ericataughtme.com invest or click the link in the show notes. And it's Erica with a K. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash invest. When you say everything is figureoutable, what do you mean by that? I mean everything. Like any problem that any of us have, any challenge, any dream, whether it's something minute like, oh my goodness, I need to fix my flat tire or my washing machine to something monumental. I want to overhaul my financial life. I want to figure out how to have an amazing relationship. I want to reinvent my health or my career, any aspect of who I am as a human being. All of that, everything in between and beyond is figureoutable, meaning that we have what it takes to transform or transform any challenge we face. What were some things in your past that you felt like were not figureoutable at the time that you had to figure out in order to get you here? Yeah, so many things. 
So I believe one of the biggest things when I was in college was figuring out how to figure out my place in the world, like who I am as a human being, what are the gifts that I have, and how can I somehow use those gifts to not only earn a living, but to figure out a way to make a difference and feel like I'm contributing in some way. And, you know, Erica, I, as a child, when adults would ask me, hey, Marie, what do you want to be when you grow up, right? Which is such that typical question that we were all asked. I never had one answer. I had like 17. It was like, (laughs) I want to be a teacher. I want to be a dancer. I want to be a model. I want to be a writer. I want to be an activist. Like the list would go on. And every year it would change. And I remember seeing the look in adults' eyes where, you know, like I would say one or two things and they'd be like, oh, that's really cool. And then all of a sudden they'd lean back (laughs) because, (laughs) right, it kept coming. And so, you know, when I graduated from college and I was on Wall Street, that was my first job on the New York Stock Exchange. I just remember feeling so out of place because most people around me, you know, they had one job, they had one thing they were passionate about. And so many of the success books that I was exposed to and all of the things that I read about, you know, how to be a really great person in life and how to make money and how to achieve your dreams. It was like, you have to specialize, you have to pick one thing and you have to be really good at it for many, many years. And then maybe you will, you know, achieve the kind of financial dreams that that you have for yourself. And that never felt right to me. Every time I tried to be one thing, it felt like I was cutting off a limb and not being true to myself, but I didn't have any other models really at that time that showed me a different path. So that was probably one of the biggest things that I had to figure out and and that journey. I feel like I'm still on it today, but letting go of the conventional ideas of who I was supposed to be in the world based on what society had shown me or what I was exposed to in my family, that was probably one of the most painful things and the biggest things. And then I think the second bit was around both relationships and also around money. Like I was not good at either of those things. I was terrible at them, to be quite honest. And that was really painful too. In romantic relationships or? Romantic relationships for sure. Like I just remember, like I'm a very loving person and I wanted to, I never actually wanted to get married or have kids. So I was a little bit unique in that regard. And I come from a super kind of traditional old school Italian American family. So That was a little bit expected of me, but again, I didn't fit that mold. And I just was having a lot of trouble navigating romance because the guys I was dating, they were all like, oh, I can't wait to get married and have kids. And I would be like, wait, why do I not fit into any of these pictures? And I didn't like, you know, they were wonderful humans, but I just couldn't see a life with them. And I just felt a little broken and lonely, to be honest with you. And then on the money front, I was piles and piles and piles and piles in debt after college. And, you know, for anyone who's been challenged with that, you know how difficult it is. And in my family, you know, growing up, there was a lot of shame and scarcity around money. It was a source of pain. It wasn't necessarily a source of pleasure or plenty. And I knew that that didn't have to be the truth, even though it was my truth at the time that it didn't have to be my truth forever. I had a feeling inside that there was a whole different possibility, but I didn't know how to get from where I was to where I wanted to be. Let's dig into that money part a little more. So what did you have to do then to change those narratives that you had in your mind about scarcity around money? First of all, this was an interesting journey. So I was trusting this little tiny voice inside of me, Erica, that knew that there was more than enough to go around. It was like this instinct or this feeling that we didn't live in a world that was scarce yet. When I looked at my own checkbook, when I looked at my own net worth, when I understood all the bills piling up, and then when I looked at just my familial history, I was like, but that's not what I experienced. Like I was having this dissonance, right? This disconnection between what I felt to be true in my heart and my reality. And I remember telling myself, like, I need to figure this out because it was so shameful for me. And the first step that I started taking was actually books, was going to say, okay, I don't have this figured out, but it seems like other people do. And I remember one of the first books that I read was by a guy named David Bach. Do you know David Bach? Rich girls. It's smart women finish rich. Yes. <laughs> right? So he's written like a gajillion books. He's actually a friend of mine now. But back in the day, at the beginning of my financial journey, I didn't know anything, you know, and they don't teach us finance in school, which you know. And so so many of us are like, I don't know how to deal with this topic. So smart women finish rich. It opened my eyes to the possibility that A, I was capable of this and B, there was a roadmap and a pathway. And then again, we're taking it back to like the late 90s, early 2000s, Susie Orman, right? Lover, hater, doesn't matter. She put out a lot of incredible information that was super straight talk, which I love. I'm from Jersey. So I like people that keep it real and just tell it to me. 
And it was about reading those books and continuing to feed my mind with information that told me it was possible, you can do this, and here are the steps you need to take. Mm. And what were those first steps for you once you read these books? Yep. The first one was being honest about the fact that I was in a lot of debt and I wanted to stop digging that hole. Right. So was it I, student loans or it was some of it was around honestly a lot of credit card debt and just things that I had. It wasn't student loans per se. When I went to school, Seton Hall University, I helped put myself through school by working for the church. It was a Catholic school. And so I had helped to take care of some of my room and board, but in terms of like getting clothes to go on job interviews or doing some of the things that all of us do to live and be with your friends or whatever, I started racking up a ton of credit card debt. And it was like those off offers kept coming in and I kept saying yes. And even though I was working and even though I was earning money and I was busting my buns, I just watched those interest rates continue to compound. And then it just ballooned to this level where I was like, wait a minute, I feel so weighed down and it felt terrifying. And so committing to get out of debt for me was step number one. And then step number two was really understanding how to own my worth. It was about that time, you know, I'd started off on Wall Street on the New York Stock Exchange. I realized that that wasn't for me in terms of that wasn't my journey. I had gotten jobs in publishing and Condé Nast publications. I was both in the ad sales department at Gourmet Magazine. I had a stint there for probably about eight months or so. And then I also was on the editorial side of Mademoiselle Magazine, which was a fashion magazine. And that's where I really discovered the world of coaching. And uh, we can go into that if you want to, if it's interesting. But once I left the corporate world, once I left that steady paycheck, that health insurance, all of those things that many of us experience if we're in that format of work. And I was on my own. I was like, oh, I got to figure out how to charge, how to build a business, how to manage all of these aspects of finance that I had never had to deal with before. And I've got this pile of debt. So for me, I wanted to dig myself out of the hole of debt first and then really start to understand how to own my worth and and build wealth because that was a big goal for me. Yeah. Well, I think you said somewhere too, and I thought this was very wise that when you are going to start your own thing, you have to have your finances in place and understand your run rate first before you make that big jump. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, I think we're all built so differently. You know, one of the things I often talk about with people who are aspiring entrepreneurs or, you know, they're thinking about making that leap and leaving their nine to five behind is you want to understand how risk averse you are. So for example, I'm someone who's pretty conservative financially. You know, when I was thinking about starting my own coaching business, I could not just leave my corporate job and then start a business and like trust I was going to be able to gain clients and do all these things really fast. So I actually went back to bartending and waiting tables, being a personal assistant. I cleaned toilets. I did everything that I had to do to keep a roof over my head here in New York City, to keep eating that mac and cheese, like whatever I needed to do in order to figure out how to build a business during the day. And for me, it was also content related. As a coach, I was Mm -hmm. like, what is more sad and desperate than a life coach who's like so thirsty for clients? Like that just felt so pitiful to me. Do you you know what I mean? So I was like, if I have money coming in from bartending and waiting tables, well, then I can kind of figure out this coaching thing without feeling that sense of desperation because I have another source of income. Now, I've met other people, Erica, that are business owners who they're the type of people who thrive in high pressure situations. Like they will quit the job and say, I will go make those sales because the way that my DNA is set up, I rise to the occasion if I'm put in the fire. That is not me. So I think it's also really valuable for people to understand, to have the self-awareness to know what kind of person you are. Mm -hmm. Are you going to thrive with a little more of that runway or cushion? That's me. Or are you someone who like, let's burn the bridges because that's what brings out the best in me. And one way is not better than the other, but knowing who you are is a really huge advantage. Yeah. And I'm similar to you too. I think having that runway also allows you to make strategic decisions in your business focused around the mission and why you're doing it versus the money. Because obviously everyone needs to have money to put a roof over your head. But if that's your sole focus, your business might go a different direction than if your first focus is the mission and the why. Correct. And the second focus is money. That's right. Right. And I was willing to sacrifice speed in order to build the kind of business I wanted and to have the flexibility and the timeline to make the kind of decisions that felt true to me. 
to be able to take my time, to be educated, to experiment. And also, you know, I have called myself a multi-passionate entrepreneur because that's what I am. And when I started my coaching business, I also got really clear with the fact that I was really passionate about dance and fitness and having these explorations. And I knew that if I kind of took some of my focus away from the coaching, that it wouldn't grow as fast as if I put 100% of my energy there. But at that stage and season of my life, I needed to try everything. I needed to fulfill all these different passions. And I was cool with saying, hey, this might take me a little bit longer, but I am doing things that my heart and my soul wants me to do. And I'm cool with not being the fastest kid on the block. I'm cool with not having maybe as making as much money because my attention is spread in different places, but it felt true to me. Is that still how you're approaching your business? That you're fine being maybe spread a little thin versus having 100% of your energy towards one project? Well, I think, you know, for me... I dance. So I have stages and seasons where I go all in. So let me tell you a story. When I think it was about 10 years into my business, Erica, this beautiful, tiny little coaching business that I had wanted to succeed so badly finally started working. I was, uh, I had this high-end mastermind group. I had one-on-one clients. I was doing speaking engagements. There was this uh, conference that we put on here in New York City every year that would always sell out. And the interesting thing was that all of these things were working and I was finally starting to make the money I had always wanted to make. But here was the problem. The joy I had for my work was starting to get sucked out of me because I was spread too thin. It was like I had all these ideas for ways I wanted to contribute, new content, new courses, new things I wanted to create, but they're literally were not enough hours in the day. Like I couldn't squeeze any more out. And I remember at that time I had uh, two people that worked for me and I remember saying to them like, look, like I want this business to be successful. I want to make as big of an impact as I could possibly make. But the truth is I can't right now. There is no more hours. I don't know what to do. And so we sat down and we did one of the best things we've ever done in the business, which was we wrote down every single thing I was doing to make the business run. And then we analyzed and we audited everything. Mm. So every single revenue stream, not only how much money it was bringing in, what were the expenses associated with it, but we took it one step further. We said, how does this make me feel energetically? Which of these revenue streams is bringing me joy and which is making me feel a sense of dread? And then we went even further and we said, okay, which of these has scalability? right? And which of these in terms of impact has the ability to reach the most people. And after we did all of that analyzation and we had all that data, not just in my head or thinking about it, but we had it down on the page and we could analyze it, a couple of things became really clear. One was this conference that we were doing in New York City and a couple of other the programs that we had, while they were profitable and popular, they were limited. There was only so many people I could reach because there's only so many hours in the day and I'm one person. And there were these other projects. One was Marie TV, which was like an infant project at the time. That's our online show and podcast. And the other was this program that's called B-School. It's online business school for entrepreneurs who want to make money and make a difference. Those two things were in their infancy, but they both had tremendous possibility when it came to impact, when it came to scale, also for me, when it came to joy and energy. If you're listening, let me guess. You have a passcode on your phone. And let me take another wild guess and say that you have a password on your computer. But why are so many of us okay just being completely unprotected online? We have no idea who has all our personal information online and whether it's the good guys or the bad guys who might be selling your information or worse. We're talking spammers, telemarketers, robocallers, People who want to know more about you and even where you live. My sister had her data leaked online and because of that, her identity was stolen and it was a nightmare to deal with. We had to lock down all her credit cards just for starters. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Aura, a sponsor of this episode. Aura can identify data brokers exposing your info and submit opt-out requests on your behalf. When I discovered it, I knew I had to try it out just to see if my information had been leaked online, which they let me see instantly after I signed up. And get this, for my audience, they're offering a free 14-day trial so you can see if your personal information has been leaked online. To find out now, go to ericataughtme.com aura to claim your free 14-day trial. Erica with a K and aura is spelled A-U-R-A. 
Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash aura. And I'll also leave the link in the show notes. And, and you not having to be entirely involved. It's Correct. not an hour of your time equals an hour of work product. Correct. And so we made a bold move. And I said, okay, given all of this understanding that I know, I'm actually going to kill like 90% of what my offerings are. I'm going to stop doing consulting. I'm going to stop doing one-on-one work. We're going to stop doing the conference. I'm going to stop doing the mastermind. And it totaled over a million dollars in revenue that I was taking off the table. Now, for context, you know, I didn't grow up with a lot of money, started my business in debt. So this felt like the scariest move ever. However, when I really identified what was most important to me was joy and profitability, scalability and impact, it was the right move. And it all came down to three simple words, simplify to amplify, simplify to amplify. So when I took away some of those revenue streams and I focused all of my and my team's attention on both B-School and Marie TV, Erica, I think it was in like a year or two, everything skyrocketed, like 10x growth that I could have never predicted. And all of my joy came back. All of my creativity came back because I had some margin and I wasn't being spread too thin. So every so often in the business, to go back to your question, we definitely do a little bit of a simplify to amplify audit where we just throw everything out on the table, take a look at it, really ask the tough questions like, is the juice worth the squeeze? And if not, we have the courage to prune it back. Because that's usually what it takes. It's like we go through these cycles of growth and complexity. And then for me, I really, really value simplicity and freedom is my number one value in the world. So it's valuable to take those moments to pause, to do that little audit, simplify to amplify, and then get back in the game. What do you say to the entrepreneurs? Obviously, we are both at the stages of our careers, lives where we do have the luxury of being able to decide, oh, you can kill off these projects that equal a million dollars in revenue, but you'll still be fine. Yep. What about for the people who are just starting and trying to make their first $10,000 in business? What would be your advice for them? In terms of simplify to amplify? Yeah. In terms of figuring out what is the right direction to go when they have maybe five different ideas. Yeah. I think it's really important as an entrepreneur to have very clear goals around revenue and profit. And that may not be forever, but it might be for your next 12 to 24 months and to know the kind of numbers you want to hit. And then I think it has to be very clear for you on the potential projections of whatever these revenue streams could be. And you just got to do some real hard looking at the numbers. So for example, sometimes in B-School, you know, and I'm going to use a very kind of basic generic example, but hopefully it'll it'll communicate the point where, you know, I'll talk with someone, they'll be like, wow, okay, let's say that I want to reach that first 50,000, that 10,000, whatever it is. And I'm thinking about writing this ebook and, you know, charging like 10 bucks for it. And this is a person who has expertise, they have something to share. And then I'm like, do you know how many ebooks you're going to have to sell? <laughs> like, do you know how much conversion that's going to take? The kind of numbers that you're going to need to hit because business is all a numbers game versus is it possible for you to flesh this out and to create some type of irresistible offer that's perfect for a dream client or an ideal client that could get them that result, but you could charge much more. The profit margins are going to be that much bigger. It's still going to take work, but you're going to hit that number so much faster and likely get someone dramatically better results than you would off of an ebook. Mm. So I think it's really about being honest about your own financial goals, the numbers that you want to hit, and really having an ability to vet your particular ideas and be real with yourself. What is it going to take to hit those numbers? Who do I have to become? What are the types of, um, again, if it's traffic and it's online generation and conversions, like being really sober about that data and being really willing to say to yourself, what am I willing to do to get there? If it's you know, are you great at traffic generation? Are you great at SEO? Are you great at relationships? Are you great at talking at podcasts? Are you great at, um, you know, securing brand partnerships or advertising deals? Or are you better at selling face-to-face or webinars? Like being really clear on what your strengths are and matching them up with your financial goals. That's That would be the place I would start with someone looking to make their first 10,000 or 50,000 is just to be real about it and then to line up where your strengths are with the numbers that you want to hit. And then you got to give it your best shot. Because none of us, you know this, Erica, nobody has a business crystal ball, right? There's no guru. There's no teacher, certainly not me, who can give you a guaranteed formula. There are principles that you can follow. There are certain timeless ideas that all of us have to adhere to in business, but so much of it is unknown. I know, unfortunately, there's no guaranteed formula, but let's just say that 
you had to start from zero. No one knows your name. No one knows who you are. And I task you with trying to make $100,000 in a year. Yes. What formula are you going to follow? What would you do? I think if I were restarting today, and so I had a year to make a hundred grand. Okay, let me ask you this. Do I have my current skill set? Yes. Okay, awesome. You are who you are. I am who I am. (laughs) Fabulous. Love to know the rules of the game. So I think in that case, what I would probably do is I would get very clear on who I want to serve. Like who is my ideal audience? Who are the people that I am absolutely committed and clear that I can provide tremendous value to. So I would identify them. Then I'd probably go have conversations with them and me knowing who I am, I would probably talk to them about their business, understand where their struggles were around their marketing, their messaging, their positioning. I would gather all of that intel and then I would probably make, you know, maybe 10, uh, like a $10,000 offer and close 10 sales. Wow. How do you create enough value in an offer that you can sell someone for $10,000. In terms of creating that kind of value, this has been what I've always tried to do at every part of my business is to ask myself, okay, whatever price that I'm putting out there for a particular offer, how can I create at least 10 times the value for my customer or for my client? And really get into that, really start to unpack what this particular result would mean for that person, not only financially in terms of their bank account, but what about emotionally and mentally? Would it help them create less stress? more freedom. How could I get them to their ideal outcomes or dream scenarios? And what are all the things I could package and position to help get them to the place that they ultimately want to go? And so it takes a lot of creativity to think like that. But when you care so deeply about the person that you're serving and you take time to ask questions, you understand their dreams, you understand their fears, you understand their aspirations and their frustrations. If you really listen to people, they'll reveal to you what they need, whether Mm. it's more convenience, it's more speed, they need to feel safe, they want X, Y, or Z. And as entrepreneurs, that is this beautiful opportunity to use our creativity and our heart and our caring to package up something that they would be like, oh my gosh, $10,000, like that is a steal. That's how you want to have it. You want to have the person who's paying you feel like this was the best deal ever and I would pay you five or 10 times more. That's what we try to do with our products, honestly. And I can't knock it out of the park for everyone because I'm not for everyone, just like any business owner, right? You are not for everyone. But for our ideal clients, the refrain that we hear again and again is, Marie, I would have paid you 10 times for that. And that's how I know. I was like, I did it. Mm. I did my job. What about people though, just starting off and it's almost the chicken and the egg problem that there always is where it's like they don't have results to prove that they can do it, but they want to get that first client, the second client in the door to get those results. Do you believe in working for free or discounted rates? I do. So as, and this was my journey and I know people have super different philosophies on this and that's awesome. Here's how I feel about it. And I feel very strongly about this. When you're just starting out in anything, right? And you don't have those testimonials yet, or you don't have that track record. That is the most amazing time to go out there and serve your buns off and serve your heart off. And again, for me, it was like, I will bar 10, 10 more shifts, a hundred more shifts, whatever it takes to demonstrate in a real way, both to clients and to myself, that I can do this. So I love working for free and proving that I can create this thing for someone. First of all, it takes all the risk away from your potential client. Second of all, it challenges you to step up and do amazing work. Mm -hmm. And third of all, if you're transparent about it from the beginning and you let someone know, you're like, hey, I know you're taking a risk on me in terms of time, but I'm going to knock it out of the park for you. Here's what we're going to set as the, this is what knocking it out of the park looks like. If I do this, will you give me this case study, testimonial, referral, whatever is Mm -hmm. appropriate for your business? You set that up like five or six times. What's even more valuable than the testimonial or the referral or the case study that comes out of it is the confidence you gain. Yeah. All of a sudden you are unstoppable. Then it's not about having fear when you walk into a situation or pitching yourself. Like you walk in the door, like you can own it because you know you can. And to me, that confidence that comes from doing things for free is invaluable. That is worth millions of dollars, way more than the 20, 40, 60, 100 that you put in for the service on the front end. 
So that confidence point is so interesting because I know, at least for myself, I feel like on the confidence scale, I'm a little lower. Like it takes a lot for me to feel like, oh, I am confident doing this. I tend to doubt myself more than oversell myself. Have you found that to be the case for many soon-to-be entrepreneurs where they really struggle with that confidence bit? Surely. And I did too. I think a lot of this also can have to do with, but not always, our age. Like when I started, I was like 23 and I just felt like I was not old enough to know anything and no one would take me seriously. I actually got headshots done at that time. I have to show you, Erica. Oh my goodness. They're in black and white. Like I had this bob, I had this suit on. Like I tried to make myself look 10 years older than I was. And so I think the confidence piece is something that hits many of us, especially if you've worked in the corporate world, especially if you're not really around entrepreneurs, it can feel really intimidating to go out on your own and say, I am worth this, or I have this product or this service that you should buy. But I want to say too about the confidence bit, you don't need to have confidence before you start. So one of my mantras in life, and it served me so well, it still serves me to this day, is start before you're ready. Mm -hmm. Start before you're ready. Like get out there and take action. Let it be imperfect action. Experiment, test, try stuff, because you will actually gain confidence as a byproduct of doing things, of engaging. And what's cool is like, you don't have to get things perfect. I remember my first ever workshop, Erica, oh my gosh. So I'd had this vision in my head and I was hopeful that one day I would be able to teach an impact like thousands of people, maybe tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. But sitting alone in my studio apartment in New York City, I was like, how is that ever going to happen? Like it felt so far away. But I said, you know, the only way I'm ever going to potentially get there is if I just go and start. And so I created this workshop. It was called Create a Life You Love. It was like the cheesiest thing ever. I put together a workbook using like Microsoft Word clip art. I don't even know if you're old enough to remember that, but it was a thing. And like I printed these workbooks and my yoga teacher at the time, this woman, Claire, I just graduated from college. She's in New Jersey. She lent me her basement to have my first workshop ever. And can I, do you know how many people are in my first workshop ever? Five. Five. (laughs) Five people. It was Claire, my yoga teacher. It was my parents came and it was two neighbors that she literally pulled in off the street. And I sat there in my yoga teacher's basement in New Jersey with like a flip chart and I had these printed out little handbooks. And it was like the stupidest, cheesiest, worst thing ever, but I did it. I like did it. And I always tell people like starting small and sucky beats staying stucky. Mm -hmm. And it's a mouthful, but it's like start, start before you're ready. Because I learned so much about myself. First of all, I learned that I could hold the room for like multiple hours. Do you know what I mean? And I could get up and teach things. I could stand up there, even though I had horrible stage fright and actually go through with it. And then I never had to do my first workshop ever again. Like that was the worst it would get. And now, you know, we've reached over a hundred million people and we've, I've, I've had the ability to work with so many folks and reach so many people. But if I didn't have the courage to be sucky in the beginning and to do it totally not confident, I would have never gotten here. And I think that's the biggest secret that I've learned too, is when you're looking at these people who seem to have figured it out, they make it feel like they knew everything from the beginning. But I think I've realized, you know, even launching this podcast, Yeah, I didn't launch a podcast before. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't even know what to order. Someone just told me, okay, order these cameras. So I ordered them and you just start. Yes. And same with money. I think about money day in and day out. And the biggest question I get is, oh, I feel not confident about investing. So I don't want to get started. And it's like, no, I'd rather have you feel like, 50% confident and just invest your first $100 yep. than ever try to feel like you can get to 100% confidence to do it. 100%. And you know, one of the other things we were talking about this earlier about like just the money journey, I had realized just how much from a societal standpoint that we are conditioned to feel like shame and embarrassment and anxiety and fear. And, you know, we're kind of, we've got this inner conflict around money. Most of us want more of it, but then we feel guilty like, oh, we're not spiritual or, you know what I mean? We must be a bad person or all this BS. And I actually started telling myself something that I still teach people to this day and I want to offer it to your listeners. So I love money. I absolutely love money and I am unashamed about that. I am very proud of it. And when I invite people to say, I say, just say it out loud. Like maybe when no one else is around, (laughs) you can close the bathroom door, right? Or just say like, say it out loud. See how it feels to say, I love money. And most people are like, but is lightning going to come down? And like, am I going to die? And it's like, no, watch how good it feels in your body. When you start to 
pour the energy of love into this area of our life that has been filled with so much shame and pain and anxiety and conflict. And the energy of love is incredibly healing. And it doesn't mean that you worship money or you love it over Mm -hmm. people or over your values, but what would happen if you loved your money life? How would that change everything? Would you be interested in learning about what makes it thrive? Just like a a physical partner, like my partner, Josh. I love him. I don't want to control him. I don't have to hoard him. I'm not afraid of him. I want to understand what is going to make this beautiful being thrive as big and as awesome as he is meant to be. I listen to him. I pay attention to him. I engage with him, right? And so that energy of love can be really healing. And I think whether it's the finances of your business and of Mm -hmm. making sales and marketing or just your personal finance in your life, it's like, why not love money? Why not pour that energy onto it and see what transformation happens? I love that you said that. I'm chuckling because I have a big fear of speaking on stages. And my first big speech I had, there was a Q&A portion afterwards. And someone asked me something about money. And I said, I love money. When I decided I wanted to become a millionaire, I broke it down. And in order to make a million dollars in a year, you have to average about $400 an hour. And that's how I knew I could become a millionaire because I love money. And I got off stage and I was so mortified because I think I was just blacked out. I get so nervous on stage that I black out. And I could not believe me, someone who was like taught growing up never to talk about money, that I was impolite and improper. I went on a stage in front of like thousands of people and said, I love money. Yes. I yes. I like how you said like do it in private, but I actually did it on a stage. I love it. Same thing. So when I was on tour for Everything is Figure Outable, there was someone that stood up and was asking about how to figure out money. And I challenged her just because we were having fun. I was like, I want you to say it right now. And she's like, can I really? I was like, yes. And that's usually the response I get. Like when I say like, I love money, usually in the audience, there's like gasps, like, oh my God, is lightning going to strike her down right now? And then the next one is like, say it again. Oh my God, I do too. Yes. It's like this freedom. And I think that that's possible for all of us because it's not about a certain amount. You know, some people have different appetites. It could be like, oh, I want a billion dollars. I want 10 million. I want 25 million. I want 25,000. I want 25. All of it is beautiful. All of it is awesome. It's like respecting the individuality of our appetites and allowing people to say, yes, I want to pour love on every aspect of my, I want to love my body. I want to love my health. I want to love my partner, my team, mm-hmm. my business, and yes, my money. I think that's so important. And I don't think I realized it because I'm very logical. The lawyer in me is very much like very logical about the way I approach things. Yeah. And so I used to think anyone who said, oh, you have to like talk nicely to yourself was, it sounded kind of woo-woo and a little fluffy to me. But now I am starting to realize the way you talk about yourself to yourself and then also the way you have conversations about things like money to yourself really impacts the outward success that you can have. A hundred percent. So here's one of the things that I believe to my core almost as strong as everything is figure out. Well, like that's my life mantra. So the most important words in the universe are the words you say to yourself. This is not woo-woo. It's not science fiction. It's actually science fact. So if we look at this from a, a neurological perspective, right? Neurons that fire together, wire together. And we all know about neuroplasticity. So our brains are not static. They are actually always in flux. They are always being shaped and reshaped by our environment, but not just our external environment, our internal environment. So the words that we say to ourselves, our emotions, our feelings, the biochemicals that run through us. You know, when we're in scarcity mode, when we're in survival mode, that creates a ton of cortisol in our system and that has an impact on our brain. And there's science behind this, like very good science. On the other side, when we are open, when we're abundant, when there is love, possibility, creativity rushing through our veins, when we're relaxed and calm, it has an impact on our brain and our ability to be creative and our ability to stay in our prefrontal cortex, which is all of our executive functioning, reasoning, making smart decisions, making wise decisions. All of that impacts our ability to create real tangible results in our lives. So I love that Mm. you shared this right now because it's not woo-woo. Like we have science to back it up. And if you just pay attention and you think about in your life, if you tell yourself day in and day out, you can't, you're going to have those results in your world, right? You're not going to have so much success. You're not going to have the tangible um, progress that you're looking for. But if you're constantly telling yourself, oh, I may not have this yet, but I got this, or I'm figuring this out, or I'm on the path, you're going to see yourself feel more motivated, be more inspired to take more action, be more willing to learn, and be more willing to grow. So I love that you're on this track now because that rational, logical part of our mind, it's awesome. We don't want to leave that. But there's 
all of this other intelligence that we have that is rooted in our emotions and our subconscious that absolutely does not respond to facts, logic, and statistics. And if we can get the emotional side of our brain, the spiritual side of our body in line with loving money, the doors really do fly open. Love that. We've established that we both agree on that. The self-talk is super important. Yes. And you were saying that for people who just want to get started, let's say the first thing you maybe go out and do is find who you want to help to go ahead and offer services to try to help them get the testimonials. Now, what do we do after we've done that? So I think there's really a, probably a period of assessing, like, did it work? Do you love who these people are? Is this the kind of market that you want to keep developing products and service for? You know, one notion that I think is really interesting to explore is never fall in love with your product or your service, but fall in love with your customers. Because customers have all kinds of needs. They have all kinds of ever-growing and changing desires. And if so, if you fall in love with a particular market and you keep asking them, paying attention, what else do they want and need? What else are they struggling with? What pisses them off? What are their secret dreams and aspirations that no one's even fulfilling? When you put yourself in a position of being in relationship with your ideal market and you continue to listen, evoke, ask questions, you're always going to find possibilities for growth in your business. And I think there's the other aspect of it, of what kind of business do you want to have? You know, Do you want to have a service-based business where if it's beyond yourself, you might start attracting other service providers to work underneath you? If you want to develop you know, actual physical products, you want to sell t-shirts or candles or anything like that's a whole other business model. But I think once you kind of get the wheels turning and get started, you get some money coming in, you get feedback from the marketplace, it's useful to assess and to go within and ask yourself, what kind of business do I want to run? What's my vision for it? I recently went on an anniversary getaway with the husband and it was beautiful. Here's everything I got for free. We got free business class tickets for an international flight, which meant, yep, you guessed it, I got free access to the lounge where we could kick things off with a glass of champagne. Then we got a free stay at a five-star hotel where we could relax and go to the beach. Okay, so now I'm sure you're wondering how I got it for free, and you know I don't gatekeep, so here's the insider knowledge you need to know. I did it by signing up for a free built credit card. Built is a credit card that lets you earn points just for paying your rent, and there's no extra fee. And when I say free, I mean free. There's no annual fee for the credit card, and they don't charge a transaction fee for paying your rent with the card. You'll also earn two times the points on travel and three times the points on dining. Once you get your points, you can transfer them to travel partners like airlines and hotels to then get the free business class flights or five-star hotels like I did. To sign up for this card, go to ericataughtme.com slash built. Erica is with a K and built is B-I-L-T. Or to make it easier, go to the link in the show notes. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash built. I remember when I first quit my job as a corporate lawyer, I had designed what I decided was like my core tenants for the business. So one was it had to be fully remote. Mm. One was there had to be passive income involved. So it wasn't just me trading my time for money. It wasn't just what I was used to at the law firm, which is I work an hour, I get paid for an hour. I really wanted some kind of passive income element there. And then three was everything had to be connected to a mission. And I never wanted to get so sucked into the money or success that I lost focus on why I started of this in the first place. And for me, that my why has always been the one joy I have in my life is helping people. And there's nothing that motivates me more than feeling like even just one person is helped by the work that I'm doing. So those were like the three things that I really wanted to stick with. And I've stuck with all but one of them. Which one? <laughs> the remote. It initially wanted a fully remote team. Now I have mostly a remote team, but three of the people are in person. And I realized I, I like having people in person with me. Well, that's Not awesome. Everyone, but. You no, know, but that's a great example of how you started with this dream in your heart, right? Of what you believed that you wanted and you were true to that. Then here's another mantra for you because I live my life on mantras. I have ADHD. So I need things that I can hang on to that keep me on track. Clarity comes from engagement, not thought. 
Clarity comes from engagement, not thought. So you started off with this authentic, genuine desire, these three things that you wanted, um, remote, passive income, stay true to your mission. As you started gaining traction and started getting out there in the real world, you're like, oh, wait, I don't have to be fully remote. I actually enjoy having some people near me in New York. So that's a beautiful demonstration of clarity coming from the engagement with your mission. And that's what I think is so awesome. Like all the time when we're creating these projects and we're moving towards our dreams, there's going to be new information that drops Mm -hmm. in. We're going to discover different aspects of ourselves that we couldn't have discovered way back in the day. So I think it's a beautiful demonstration of how your dream will evolve. And once you define your dream, you can refine it over time. Mm -hmm. And that's the beauty that comes from not just sitting on your couch, dreaming about it, meditating about it, doing vision boards about it. All those things are awesome. But where the real traction is going to come from is you getting off your butt, getting out there and making some magic happen. Yeah. And I think a lot, both in work and relationships, is also by process of elimination. So you can have your dream checklist of all the things you want in a dream partner. But really, I mean, in my life, at least, the way you figure it out is you kiss a bunch of frogs and then you figure out which frogs or what types of frogs you don't like. Yes. And you know what? That's something we've talked about. Um, We have this program, I was telling you about it called Time Genius, where sometimes when I'm helping people design like their ideal day and how they want to use this precious resource that they have called time, one of the easiest ways to start to figure out what you want is by clearly identifying what you don't. And for so many of us, same thing with a business. If you're having trouble visioning what that dream business would be or dream house or dream partner, go to the other side. Start listening to all the things that you know you definitely don't want to be a part of. And sometimes that's a little closer to the surface for most Mm -hmm. of us, our frustrations, the things that drive us nuts, the things that we definitely know are a no. And then by uh, the process of elimination, once you have that nice list of what you don't want, all of a sudden what you do want becomes a lot more clear. Yeah. One thing I learned in my corporate life was like, I don't want a boss again. There you go. So then it's like, okay, my only choice if I don't want a boss is what? I have to go start my own company. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. Freedom has been my number one value. It's so good. I want to learn more about the time genius thing because I think time is our only asset that we cannot buy more of. We cannot ever rewind. We cannot get more of it. How do we protect our time and be smarter and more efficient about it? I think understanding that your time is yours and yours alone. And here again, I'm going to be putting out all the mantras on Erica's show. So here's one that I live by. When you know what's important, it's a lot easier to ignore what's not. So when it comes to time, when you know it's important, it's a lot easier to ignore what's not, which presupposes that you know what's most important to you. And I think that that's the piece that we're never really taught about. You know, at different stages and seasons of life, there's going to be different priorities. And I think for each of us, it's so vital, Erica, that we get really clear on what is most important. Because we have these incredible tools at our fingertips, right? We all have these phones and we have these pieces of technology that it's easy to become addicted. It's easy that in moments of feeling uncertain or feeling bored or feeling upset or feeling frustrated or feeling insecure, that we just go and grab a thing and scroll, right? And scroll and scroll and scroll. And when you start kind of doing a little bit of a time audit, this is something that we have people do in Time Genius. When I'm like, look, you're going to do this like you're a journalist. You're just going to absolutely track how you spend your time for seven days. You don't have to make it complicated, but you can't you can't write down what you think you should be doing and you can adjust your behavior to make yourself look better to you on paper. Like you got to be pure about it. And when folks start really looking at how much time gets flittered away, whether it's on Netflix or social or whatever it is, and they realize, oh my goodness, I have more than enough time for what's most important. I just haven't been allocating it right. That opens up a whole new world. So I think really understanding the simple math and really getting sober about how you're currently spending your time and then not beating yourself up, but just saying like, is this getting me where I really want to go? Mm. Is this getting me where I really want to go? Because, you know, in order to start a business, you don't necessarily need six or eight or 10 hours a day. You could start getting a side hustle going in like 30 minutes a day, an hour a day. And most of us can find that if we really want to. Yeah. And I think one of my biggest epiphanies, it came originally from reading the four-hour work week where the author Tim Ferriss says that he only checked his email, I think, once or twice a day. Because a lot of us, what we do is we keep our email open and we're reactive. So the moment a ping notification comes, we see that email, we drop whatever else we're doing and we respond to that email. 
Yep. And so we're really letting the technologies around us dictate how we're spending our time. Same thing with your cell phone. Your cell phone rings and you pick it up or your cell phone buzzes and you respond to the text and you're dropping whatever you're doing. But I think the act of like really taking control of those all through the day, my cell phone is off. Me it's too. completely on do not disturb mode. If you call me too bad, like I'll reach it. I'll call you back when I get back on it. Email too. I really try to like close out of it. I'm not always the best with it, with anything habit related. <laughs> like sometimes it's hard to be on top of it all the time, but I, I try to be just more conscious about how I'm letting the devices around me control my time. A hundred percent. And I think like taking control of those settings and just going in there, and it sounds so simple, but most of us, we're just defaulted to whatever the app or whatever the piece of software is, and they're disruptive. They're incredibly interruptive and they're designed to distract us because think about it, every social channel or most mechanisms, like their stock price is going to go up the more attention we collectively give it. Mm -hmm. And so I think to just take those five or 10 minutes, turn off all the notifications and people get nervous, but what if I'm going to miss something? It's like if you have a significant other, if you have someone in your family that really from a medical perspective or whatever, they need to get through, it's like the technology exists to have someone in your favorites be able to get through while everything else just sits to the side until you're ready to give it to your attention. When you did the time audit for yourself, what yeah. surprised you the most? I think at that time, this was probably maybe around 2018 or so was the last time I did it. Then I really felt like I had to do it. I thought I was much better on my phone in terms of not being on social than I actually was. And Erica, when I saw the hours and like, I wanted to throw up. I really, really did. And it wasn't even like fun or productive time. At that stage, I remember I was like using it as a comparison tool and would always feel like crap. So it wasn't like I was looking at social and I was like, oh my God, these are cute bunny videos or these are great dance videos. And I would walk away. You know what I mean? Either having laughed or learned something. It was just like a habit, a destructive habit. And I would find myself in what I call like doing shots of compare schlager, which is, uh, you know, the equivalent of like going to a local bar and doing like horrible liqueur shots where you wind up throwing up in a corner for three days and feel terrible and you're so off your game and you're just constantly in this mind loop of I'm not doing enough, I'm not producing enough, I'm not whatever enough. And that was probably the most surprising thing to me because I thought I had it more under control, but it was hours and hours and hours. I'm like, this is unhealthy. Do you ever find that comparison can be a good thing or do you think it's always negative and as soon as we find ourselves comparing ourselves to other people, we need to try to get rid of it? I don't think it's a good thing. I don't think it's a good thing at all. I think that most people, when you start to look at what other people have and you feel bad about yourself, you know, you and I were talking about this a little bit off camera. So obviously we exist in the world where social creatures and we love looking around and we love noticing what other people are doing. And for me, I find that when I'm observing others who are kind of in their full joy, their full glory, they are just winning and it's authentic, meaning like the person who you're seeing on the magazine cover or on the Instagram or the TikTok or whatever, they're in integrity and it's like their artistry, whatever that might be is coming to life. I wind up feeling inspired by them super, super inspired. And I've only recognized this little pattern. It might be unique to me, so maybe no one else will feel this. But in 22 years of doing what I do and kind of being around the block a few times, I've noticed that sometimes when I observe people and they're like winning and it looks like they're winning, whatever they're doing, I wind up feeling like super like less than. I wind up learning later that there was something happening behind the scenes that maybe what they were showing the world wasn't necessarily true off camera, if that makes any kind of sense. Yeah. So there was a, something was out of integrity and out of alignment. So I've found that to be this really interesting distinction. So to go back to your question, it's useful and it's wonderful to appreciate and celebrate other people's awesomeness. But if you find yourself for whatever reason in a place where if you look at other people's work and you just go down and say, I'll never be that good. It's never going to be possible for me. I'm not working enough. I'm not producing enough. I'm not going fast enough. You need to step away. It's like you need to not take that shot of compare schlager. You need to stay in your own game because here's the truth. Everyone is on their own journey in this life. Everyone is doing their own thing. They're born with such unique gifts and someone else's winning or happiness does not detract 
from yours. And because someone else got that magazine cover or has a gajillion followers or made their first 10, 25, 40 million, it does not mean that there's any less possibility for you. But, you know, we human beings do strange things with our minds. Mm -hmm. And so if you looking at what other people is doing is taking you down, you got to step away from it. And it's so interesting because that line between content or someone you're following being inspiring versus making you feel bad, only you can decide where that line is. And as soon as you feel like it's on the other side, you should feel free to unfollow them. Yes. Right? I mean, I remember when I wanted to be fit and have this like bikini body. I followed all of these Instagram accounts of fitness influencers because I thought, oh, that would inspire me. But it did the opposite. It just made me feel worse because when I compared my body and how it looked to their bodies, I didn't see like the hope for me one day achieving their body. What I felt was, oh, I'm not there and they're different. So I unfollowed all of them. And now even so, like I feel bad because I'm not supposed to do this, but even people I meet in the social media world, sometimes if their content is not making me feel good about myself, I'll just unfollow them. Totally. And I know people look at like who I'm following and who I unfollow. So I hope people don't take it personally, but you have to be faithful to your truth. You've obviously helped millions and millions of people. What's the one thing that you say or have them do that really resonates that you have so many people come to you and say, wow, Marie, like I'm so glad you said this or taught me this. Interesting. I think everything is figureoutable as a core belief to inject, absorb, and make a part of your kind of DNA as a human being is probably one of the most powerful because we all find ourselves in moments of, oh, shiitake, right? Like something hits the fan. You find yourself in a position where the thing that you wanted to work out wasn't working out, technology breaks, or you have a major rupture in your life physically, with your family, with your business or your career. And it's in those moments of feeling like, how am I going to handle this? Do I have what it takes? Am I the person I need to be? That this little phrase, everything is figureoutable, can really help you tap into your innate power. Your innate power to get back up, your innate power to figure something out, to reach out for help, to ask the right questions and to not feel helpless or hopeless. Mm -hmm. So I think that's probably one of them. I think another thing though, when I think about how people have thanked me for the work in, in some form, it's a few things about trusting themselves and following what feels joyful, like what feels good to them rather than what feels good to their head. I think about the permission to be like a multi-passionate entrepreneur, the permission to be all of the things that they're interested in, not just kind of one narrow definition of who they could be. It's a great question, Erica. Let me see if there's anything else that comes to mind in terms of what people feel like. Thank you for teaching me that. You know, we were circling around the I love money conversation. I think that's another one around really giving themselves permission to embrace their ability to be wealthy on every level and to create a life that's probably different than the ones that they've seen growing up or that they thought was possible for themselves and giving themselves permission to to build new things, try new things, become the person that they've always wanted to be. So I don't know if that was specific enough, but no, I love th- those that. are a handful. I love that. Is there anything that you wish you would have done differently in the last 20 years of your career? You know, I really don't. And I'll tell you why. I have this phrase. It's not my phrase. I did not make it up. I think it might be attributed to Nelson Mandela or someone else. We can certainly Google it up. But this notion of I win or I learn, but I never lose. So I win or I learn, but I never lose. And what I love and find so true about that statement is I figured out like my entire course of my career, anytime I thought something was like going wrong or this isn't the way it should be working out or, oh no, I'm falling behind or whatever, you like fast forward a little bit and I'm like, that was the best thing ever. Like life's denials are not necessarily rejection and life's rejection is God's protection. That's another phrase that's like, oh wow, thank God I didn't get included on that or that would have been a total shit show or this, you know, looking back, you always see it. So I don't have regrets. I think the only thing if I could rewind the clock is I would tell myself to relax a little bit more. You know, I was so stressed out in the beginning, which is understandable, but always, always pushing, always striving, always so fearful that it wasn't all going to work out. And obviously it did, but I don't think the fear and the stress contributed to it working out. Mm. (laughs) I think it was just making me more tired. Is there ever a point where you're going to be able to say, 
I've achieved what I need to achieve. I'm done. I'm going to go retire and draw pictures. Yeah, no, it's a it's a great question. I've actually been wrestling and, and thinking about that a lot. Um, my partner Josh, who is amazing, we've been together. We just celebrated our 20 year anniversary, and so he knows me inside and out. And I remember there was one point where I think I was having like a little bit of a insecurity fest of going like, but I'm not doing enough, and I haven't produced enough. And he's like, you really need to sit down. And she, he's like, you won. He's like you won. You've won. Everything you've set out to do, you've already won. He's like, so from here on out, it's like gravy. What do you want to do? What do you want to create? And Erica, I think to answer your question, like there may come a point where I, my soul is just like, you're done. Right. And it's time to go do whatever, dance and draw pictures. But I think contributing for me is such an act of creativity and it's so enjoyable that I don't know if that day will ever come, but I do know now after 22 years that I'm interested in like shifting gears. I know the pace at which I've worked since, you know, I started working when I was nine and have just kept going. Now I'm interested in more space and more fluidity than I've ever had before. And dance is a huge passion of mine. So I was one of the world's first um, Nike elite dance athletes. And so I got to travel around actually to Dubai for quite a bit of time, um, which was super fun and all over the world and teach dance. And I find that that is coming back into my life in a really big way Mm. that was unexpected. And so spending more time in the studio, spending more time back in class, spending more time being expressive around dance has really been lighting me up lately. And it feels though like it's feeding other parts of my creativity that just have been dormant for a little while. Time will tell whether or not there's going to be like a done point for me. I don't necessarily see it, but I'm open. And so in order to find more time for dance and the other passions, this comes back to my thing about passive income, where passive income for me is so, so important because I've just... Most people will continue to work nine to fives where they're working at a job and they're trading their time for money. And the moment that they say, I'm going to stop working, that money stops coming in. So it's really important for me to try to educate people on how to build that passive income. So what do you say to people who come to you and say, okay, I've I've done the service-based business where I've been coaching or consulting people. How do I get to that next step now where at least some aspect of it is passive so I can go do my passions like dancing? Yeah. So I think especially if it's a service-based business or some type of consulting, usually what that says to me is you have a certain amount of expertise and you've developed some kind of content or some type of system that can be codified and be taught to many people at once. And so that could take the form of an online course. It could take the form of a book. It could take the form of a seminar, some type of one to many offer that doesn't necessarily require you showing up again and again. And for me, I really love because I came from the world of not only coaching, but you know, there's probably four or five fitness videos out there that if you know old school fitness DVDs, you could see them at like a Walmart or a Target, like me on the cover, like, hey, <laughs> like that is super fun. But it was my first experience teaching on camera. And I was like, wow, I can change all these people's lives, teaching them these workouts. They can feel better in their body. They can reach their fitness goals. And I'm not there in class with them like I am in New York City. Whoa. So then when I started coaching and I was like, wow, I keep saying the same thing over and over again to people. Why don't I start teaching a class on this? And rather than teaching one person at a time, now I have 40 people in a class. And then when we developed B-School, it was like, whoa, hundreds and thousands and like seven, eight, 10,000 people in a class at a time. That's where you start to get for me. It's not truly passive because In my experience, especially with online courses, and I'm so interested to hear about your journey with passive income, I definitely want to ask you questions, but with an online education business like what I have, it is absolutely leveraged income. So Mm. super leveraged because I think... My experience has been, you know, if you're getting traffic from ads, if you're getting traffic from, you know, um, appearing on other people's podcast or your book, there's still a certain amount of showing up that you have to do or tweaking that has to happen from the back end systems, but it is extremely leveraged. Mm-hmm. I haven't discovered anything besides perhaps actual financial investments that have that true, 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 true passive. My brother, um, who I love so much, he's actually into real estate and developing different businesses in that sense. And we were talking about this a few weekends ago where he's investing in some storage 
storage facilities because it's like he's like it's the closest thing. It's not fully passive because there's still someone who has to manage and run the storage facility. He's like, but it's a lot closer than saying being a landlord. Mm. And we were talking about that. So I want to actually pause and ask you, tell me about your experience with passive income and what have you seen to be the most passive and what are you leaning towards in your life? I mean, for sure, the most passive is something like investing in the stock market, investing in dividend stocks, yep. investing in real estate. I do think the the misconception about passive income is that it's just you sit there and you forget it and it keeps bringing you money. Yes. I feel like very few things are like that. Correct. Minus the things that I've just mentioned. For what we are building, similar like affiliate income. Yes income from courses. It's passive to an extent, but you're right. If I stopped creating any videos on social media, it, that income would probably die off in two to three years. So. Correct. Yeah. So I think it's it's fun to like, we kind of hold it in the universe of passive income. And when we get a little bit more refined about that distinction, it feels more like highly leveraged income, mm-hmm. which for me has been more of a truth in our business. And I love it. It's great. The things I love about it, you know, you were talking about mission and you and I share a lot of DNA like that because I love making a difference to people and it allows me to take my experience and my ability to create curriculum and my research and all of those things and put it into a format that's accessible, that people can learn on their timetable, that they can go back to again and again. You know, and I consider myself, I'm a lifelong learner. I am a student at heart and I will always be. And I love when I find a book or a podcast or a course that opens my eyes to a new possibility and that I can go back and, oh, I can rewatch those videos or I can re-download those audios or I can redo what we call in our business, we call them fun sheets because worksheets sound like work and fun is fun. Um, but they're that ability to just take those ideas and to personalize them. And so I think that going from a service business, one-on-one or consulting and considering doing an information type of business, it is extremely leveraged. It can help you impact so many people and it can be a really beautiful way to dramatically grow your wealth. And I'm also, I think, a big on diversifying yeah. income streams because the reality is any of us could get canceled at any moment. And with that, maybe three, four of our income streams just die entirely. So that's why I think it is important for you to just build up as many income streams as possible so that you have that diversity and you have that safety net almost. That stability. The stability. I have things that bring me income that actually have nothing to do with my face. If you Google them, you probably can't find them. Yeah. Right? No, I love that. And I think it's also, it comes back to that notion of loving money and understanding personal finance and putting yourself on that path towards financial freedom. That gets me really excited because I do think it is possible, honestly, for everyone. I do believe that in my heart. And like we were talking about before, everyone has different appetites. You know, my parents, for example, I love them. They are amazing. They're in their mid seventies. They are so simple in their life. Like they do not care about travel or jewelry. Like they live in a super tiny house, but you know what, Erica, they are a hundred percent debt free. Mm-hmm. That's what they taught me. Like that was one of the things that I really took from them. They live in such a way that everything is just so matter of fact and simple and they want for nothing, but they're completely rich, not because they have a gajillion dollars, they don't, but because they are so satisfied and fulfilled with their life, they're happy with one another and they take really good care of their health. And I'm like, what more could I want for my parents? And to me, it's like, that is just as beautiful and just as valuable and just as worthy of going after than someone else who might have, again, like, oh my gosh, you know, my goal is X amount of million in the bank or whatever that is. It's like, I'm a cheerleader for both because, you know, we're all such unique individuals, but that sense of financial peace and freedom is possible, but we need to get people educated and get them on the path. Mm. And security and stability. I think the thing with money that I've realized is I want everyone to reach a place where they don't have to worry about it. So I want to wrap this up. We have a closing tradition. The podcast is called Erica Taught Me, but really today is all about Marie Taught Me. So Mm -hmm. what do you want people to walk away being able to say, Marie Taught Me This? Marie taught me that the most powerful words in the universe are the words I say to myself. Thank you. 
If you want more from Marie, you can check out her book, Everything is Figureoutable, by clicking the link in the show notes, and I'll also leave a link to her Instagram. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please take a moment to leave a review. It really helps support the work that we're doing. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next Tuesday on a brand new episode of Erica Taught Me.